Last Lord's Day, uh, we had a missionary uh, and uh, a church planter uh, come and share with us from Belgium, and it was a it was a wonderful encouragement. I would encourage you to go back and listen if you didn't get a chance uh, to the sermon. And he had three great takeaway questions. Uh, if, uh, if you would uh, remember, and uh, those three questions were, will you come to dinner? Will you come to church? And will you read scripture with me? And, uh, and I've thought about that a great deal this week. So go back and listen. Um, I, uh, at our home, um, we're going to read this, the passage, uh, Luke 22, here in a second. In our house, at our big dining room table in the center, we have a stack of cards that we use from time to time, and it's called Table Talk. And then the, those little, uh, the little cards there, they're discussion questions that you can open up a conversation around the table. And, uh, and someone was at our house this week and they said, oh, what is this? And they picked up one of the cards and read the first question there. And it was this, uh, what makes uh, being you difficult? What is it about your life that is, is difficult to be you? What is the greatest thing? If Jesus was at our house and picked up that card... I think he'd say, the difficult thing about being me is captured in one story. See, with, see if you would agree with me, this is the story, this is the account that I think he would say to illustrate what's difficult about being Jesus. Okay, so listen, if you would, we're going to begin with uh, Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. Hear this, this is the word of God. And he came out and went as was custom. To the Mount of Olives. Now remember, just previous to this, two weeks we covered two weeks ago we covered this. He was in the upper room where they had the Passover meal together, and uh, he predicted that he would die and be betrayed. Verse forty. And when he came to the place, he said to them, "Pray that you may not enter into temptation." And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me." Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And he sweat, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. For sorrow, he said to them, why? Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the 12 who was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw that they would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike them with swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of that. No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me ask God's help. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would have this text, please uh, shine both truth uh, and grace into our hearts and into our minds that we might be humbled and that you uh, might be exalted. Our Father, Son and Holy Spirit, help us to love the King and to live for the kingdom because of what we see and hear revealed here in your precious word in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, it's, it's helpful from time to time uh, to travel out. 
and to travel up to 30,000 feet. I, I, why is it always 30,000 feet? I, I guess that's just because that's cruising altitude, right? That's when you can unbuckle and, and make your way about uh, the cabin. To go up and, and to appreciate, you know, Scripture is filled with, uh, with stories and windows and episodes and vignettes. And, and yet there's also a larger story, a Sometimes uh, people who know literature call it a meta-narrative, the larger story. And there are themes in that larger story to help us understand. And, uh, and, and one of those themes is the garden. And in fact, there's, there's three significant gardens in the testimony of redemptive history in Scripture. And those three gardens, just to, to, to recap those and remind us ever so quickly, the first one is very obvious. That is the Garden of Eden where uh, our, our father, through the, the agency of God the Son, simply speaking out of the power of his word, all things out of nothing uh, made and fashioned the world. And the pinnacle of that creation was what? People in his image, uh, humans, uh, a man, a, a woman, our parents, Adam and Eve, and they were told, uh, they were commanded to enjoy and eat and feast. And, and there was great things about it all, except there was one command. Please trust me, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we read in Genesis 3 that our parents there uh, disobeyed, they rejected God's authority, his, his wisdom. And now we live, they and, and we live under a curse. We, they, we lost fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another. Uh, I don't know about your house or your community or your extended family. I, I won't even mention your in-laws or your, your, your boss. We live conflicted in our relationships because of the fall and because of the broken, cursed world we live in. But even there in the garden, God promised something. That first garden, he promised that he would send uh, a mediator of a covenant, a, a redeemer, a Messiah. And so even at that stage, we were looking and later he is called and named. It's not ambiguous. It is Emmanuel. That is Hebrew, that God with us, the God man, Jesus, that God would even incarnate himself and take on flesh and enter into it. And so that's where this next garden in particular comes into focus. And that is Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives. Uh, the oil press is what that uh, communicates. Gethsemane is where Jesus uh, himself was pressed. He was pressed down because of the Father's will. Then at the close of redemptive history, we see another garden. We see a garden that is uh, described in the new city. In the center of the new city is John's vision is so glorious. In Revelation 22, he writes, Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That is a glorious vision. I, 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 I wish that we had so much faith that it would, we would just relish and cherish and meditate on that thought, that future grace, that future garden. Not everyone will be there. We were all with our parents in the garden in our own rebellion, but not everyone will be at the restoration of this new tree of life. Kids, you, you know trees bear fruit, right? And uh, they don't bear fruit all year round. 
I guess if you, you, you have uh, hydroponics or something in your house, uh, I lost the kids there. Uh, if you had some kind of greenhouse and you grew trees, I guess you could, you could bear fruit year round. But this is a unique tree that is in the new city that is the new heavens and the new earth. How do I want to break down um, our text? Three headings, and I got them listed there. The concern of Jesus, the cries of Jesus, and the control of Jesus. We see the concern of Jesus in these opening verses 39 and 40. Uh, it also is echoed in verse 46. In our previous passage, uh, two weeks ago, we studied the Last Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper instituted in that upper room as Jesus is in essence, saying goodbye. And he predicted, he said, and one of you will betray me. And there was a moment of humility because they said, uh, well, Lord, is it, is it, is it, is it I? I think that's, that, that's proper, right? Even, they didn't say it, is it, is it me? Thank you. Um, uh, it, it, they, it is it, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? There was a brief moment of, of, of humility. Peter's the one, of course, that charges out and said, well, I know it's not me because Lord, if I have to be arrested and die with you, You can bet I'm going. Okay. They had a self-doubt, just a moment of sensibility, but then there's that boasting of their strength. Peter the zealot. He is sincere, but he's also foolish. If you can go back and read verse 33, that's where he says, if I have to die and go to prison, that doesn't matter. I'm with you. Was their resolve strong enough? They all agreed, by the way, later. Other gospel accounts say that. Our weakness, I want to encourage you this morning, uh, is not a surprise to God. Do you feel weak at times uh, in those private moments, maybe in those, uh, those moments where you have a humble recognition that you don't feel like you're in control and you can't change or um, you just feel hopeless and helpless? And I want to remind you and encourage you this morning that those weaknesses are by God's design. Uh, we are we're not human doings. We're human beings and we have limitations and we are fallen. And it doesn't hijack when you have weaknesses and struggles and sin like I do. That is not hijacking God's plan or his love for you. Matthew 26 uh, it echoes that this is a parallel account in Matthew's gospel of what Luke records. It says there, watch and pray. That's what he warns them about. This is his concern for them. He wants them to be attentive, right? He wants them to be awake and alert. And so he says there, just like he does in our text in verse 40, but he doesn't just say, watch that you may not fall into temptation. He says this, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. That is our condition, our frame. We are not uh, independent uh, beings. We must acknowledge and and we we need to listen to the invitation to wake up and to pray. They needed to be physically and spiritually uh, alert. Trials come. Trials have and will come. And they they are punctuated at times. Uh, They punctuate our, our weakness. They provide sometimes an avenue of temptation when we are weak, either physically or emotionally or spiritually, there's a temptation to abandon in those moments the wisdom of God, the, the, the ways of God, the law of God. We turn to our own desires. We turn to our own uh, resources. Sometimes we revert to our coping mechanisms. But it's, it's, not, it's not helping us. 
ultimately, we, we do need dependence upon God. Jesus here is pleading for them to pray. His concern is not for himself when he says stay awake as much as it is for them. They're going to face trials on the horizon. They're going to be tempted to fall away. They're, they're going to have struggles. But we, they needed patience and perseverance. And they need God's perspective and his help. So that's Jesus' concern in those opening verses. And then we pick up at verse 41 and we see the cries of Jesus. Another way of putting this is really the crisis of Jesus because we really cannot quite grasp. There's no way for us to truly understand the agony that Jesus experienced here praying in the garden. There's so many fronts and areas if you study the life of Jesus where um, he shows himself to be the good, ex- uh, the good shepherd and a, a good example. But, but Jesus knows our, our weakness because he had to experience many of those limitations and weaknesses taking on uh, human f- flesh himself. And he's not only a God who is sympathetic, but he's actually a God who is empathetic. It impacts, of course, to understand that uh, the way that he leads and the way that he relates to humans, the way that we relate, hopefully, to humans. It should impact this. I was in a store uh, waiting to talk to a salesman, but the, the manager was addressing the salesman and he was uh, just uh, lamb blasting this guy. And he was just berating him for his his poor performance in, in some area. And the manager's back was to me. And I just heard him going on and on and on. And then he made it about him. He's like, I must be a bad boss that I can't, you know, I can't uh, frighten you to understand how important it is for you to perform. And, and, uh, and he just was, he, he just was, uh, uh, I don't know, the, he's in the Machiavelli school of, of leadership, right? And for those who've read The Prince, you know, it's in his theory, it's better to be feared than to be loved. And he wanted to instill fear in this guy and uh, finally, I interrupted. I said, pardon me. I just, oh, I didn't know you were standing there, the manager said. It would have been better if the manager, in my mind, I, I, I understand something of leadership. If he had said something to the effect, I, I've, I've been in your shoes. I, I know the challenges of being a salesman and it's intimidating. And, and I think you can do better. I'll work with you diligently to help get you there. This encounter, that's empathy. This encounter uh, and wrestling with God, the son has, has Jesus coming before the face of his father and the disciples' weaknesses. The true testimony, of course, of the authenticity of Scripture is that it just includes just this very raw moment in the humanity of Jesus. It almost makes us uncomfortable. It makes us, if we're really honest, it's like, wow, I, I can't believe that Jesus needs the help of, of prayer and angels here, that he's... That he doesn't see. I thought he was. I thought he was set on going to Jerusalem. We, we read that earlier, didn't we? But here is a man who has experienced everything in life: love, joy, passion, loneliness, betrayal, grief. Jesus has known humiliation and and rejection. It's it's all here though in Technicolor. His anguish and his sorrow. Be assured that there's there's no emotion that Jesus experiences. That leads him, including emotions like anger, that lead him into sin. They are true uh, human emotions, but not tainted with sin. Uh, the old Princeton uh, Presbyterian theologian and professor B.B. Warfield wrote a wonderful book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. 
This is what he says. All his emotions were real and sinless. He goes on, he says, the anticipated sufferings, when he's talking about the garden, Warfield writes, the anticipated sufferings that caused this agony and this sweating of Jesus, as it were, great drops of blood, are not explicable in terms simply of his physical suffering. His physical sufferings were great and were part of the atonement. But that doesn't explain the greatness of Christ's agony. Mere sinful men have faced great physical suffering without agonizing and sweating in this way. The martyrs particularly did not agonize like this. Some struggled, but others did not. Why did Jesus Christ agonize in the garden when some of his servants have not agonized in such a way? The answer is because his sufferings were not simply physical. Great great though those physical sufferings were, the suffering which he anticipated was the bearing of the wrath of God in his soul as well as his body. The sorrow and the, the anguish, the isolation that Jesus felt and knows, and he knows that he's about to endure by heading to the cross, was overwhelming. He literally is, falls down on the ground. It was an anguish, a most intense anguish. Then what happens here is, is something, I think, in really three areas. It is physical pain. It's emotional, uh, uh, even spiritual, if you will. If there's any phrase in the Bible that is most familiarly quoted, uh, it's that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But Jesus is walking right now in this account through the hardest imaginable valley a human could possibly fathom or imagine. And Jesus has fear and trembling. So back to those areas of anguish. Physically, we know that he was facing the the torment of being beaten and then hung on a, a cross for a miserable death. Emotionally, he knows he will largely be abandoned. He will be uh, he will be slapped, uh, mocked, scorned. Uh, that people will will spit upon him. Spiritually, relationally with God the Father, then there's this anguish that's accompanied by guilt uh, and shame. When we we know uh, that we have sinned and failed and offended, but he is not. He is guiltless. We feel hopeless because of evil things that we have done, and that's, that's what separates us from Jesus here. He's facing the Father and taking on our sin. Now you may say, but wait, Jesus was without sin and guilt, and indeed he was. Yet because we know that uh, this is what he is dreading is verse 42. Look at the text. What is it that he is, it has in view? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is the cup that Jesus is fearful to drink? Well, that imagery is captured in the prophet uh, Isaiah uh, and in the prophet Jeremiah. And I'll read, I'll, read, I'll read Isaiah, excuse me, chapter 51, verse 17, when it says, Wake yourselves, wake yourselves and stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk, to, drunk it to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Because he's saying, Isaiah is saying, because of your sin, God has brought opposition through your enemies and through great suffering. That is your cup. 
And Jesus is peering into this cup of sin and wrath. And imagine as, as Jesus peers into, as only he can uniquely, the brutality and the filth and the, the greed and the pride. The infidelity, the brutality. He had no, he had no, no, no other option but to, to cringe when looking at that. He's looking as, as if into a, a shadow of what hell, which is a literal place, is like. He should cringe. It actually highlights his perfection. Uh, Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, my favorite commentator again, he calls this plea, uh, this cry of Jesus in, the, in verse 42, it's, it's a righteous jewel. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Davis writes, his hesitation, Jesus' hesitation is a godly one. There would be something wrong if he didn't flinch at this. Look at the prayers of the righteous in uh, the Psalms. For them, what is the ultimate, the one most unbearable terror? It is to be cut off from the light of the face of God, to be under some outpouring of his anger. And it is the passion of godly men to be freed from that. His plea, Jesus' plea, is not a blemish on his perfection. It is a sign of it. It's not a blemish on his perfection. That he looks and he, Lord, let this cup pass from me. It's, it is truly an expression of, a sign of his perfection. Jesus will take upon himself sin and punishment to pay for our sin. This is a substitution. There's no mistaking that. It's a means of anguish and sorrow that separated him from communion and fellowship with the Father. Though for a moment it would have seemed like an eternity that they had been enjoying together. So even if for that brief window, that time, what anguish. Here's the invitation. If you feel any anguish because of your guilt and your sin and your shame or the consequences When you think about the things that you have done in your weakness as a spouse, as a friend, as a son, as a daughter, as a parent. There's an invitation and I'll, I'll read 2 Corinthians 5. We implore you, Paul writes, on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin. He made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. That in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We call that the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin And at the same time, in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. Thank God for Jesus' concern. Thank God here for Jesus' cries. The last thing I want to highlight is the control of Jesus. Jesus faces weakness and fear and anguish, and his character is tested. His character is tested. The first Adam, our father in the garden, failed the test of obedience in that first garden. The second Adam here, Jesus, a representative also, has victory in the second garden. His cry is also one of victory for us. 
Not my will, but yours be done. Father, that, that's what he said, right? He requested that it, be, that it pass, but it says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 42, again in our text. This is the resolve of Jesus that accompanies him when he leaves the garden and it is his will. Why must Jesus do this? Well, why was he, why was he draw away into the garden of Gethsemane? Because we all know this garden and we'd all like to get to that garden, which is the future city of God. But we, none of us can get there unless we see Jesus go successfully through this garden. Jesus knows that he must pray. He petitions the Father many, many times because we need the victor in our weakness. Hebrews 4 writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So therefore, go and and draw near to him, it says. We have a victor. That exchange has happened if you live by faith. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, I don't know that's happened in my life. But let me tell you, before next Lord's Day, when we come to the table, let's you come. Let's talk. Let's find out how that exchange happens. And you repent and believe. And I'd love to, to guide you. What is the father's answer to if this cup pass, let it pass. Yet not my will, but yours. Well, the father says it is. My will. And there is no other way. There is submission in Jesus. There is surrender. But don't you love the control of Jesus here too? He may be indeed humble. He may be in in fact weak. But he is not hopeless or helpless. And we see the, the mighty control of Jesus here in the garden. And I know I haven't spent much time focusing on uh, the approach of, of Judas uh, and his arrest. And I can take that up later. But just look at his control here. Jesus in verse uh, 48, Judas comes to greet him with a kiss on the cheek. He says, I already know what you're doing, and that's not what a kiss is for. It's supposed to be about loyalty, not betrayal. So let's get on with it. And of course, it doesn't record it here. Luke doesn't, but other gospels do. That what happens? They're like, okay, well then fine. Uh, Verse 49, out comes a sword, and it's Peter. I think it's Matthew that records or. or, or another gospel, Mark, records that it was Peter who took the sword and in one of those impulsive zealot moments just goes and just whacks off the guy's ear. Interesting little note. It's only Luke out of the four gospels that records the fact that Jesus healed his ear. Why do you think that is? Everybody else just leaves it dangling. <laughs> I, listen, I have not met my quota for dad jokes, so just bear with me. Uh, why? Why do you think it is that Luke? Why do you think it is that Luke includes that little detail, that physical healing? Well, no stickers for you guys today, uh, because he's a physician. I think I think that's part of the angle. That's how God works through the personalities of those who record and write His Word and. He appreciated the fact that Jesus healed it. The thing that blows me away is that I think to myself, if I had been there amongst that giant guard of of those coming to arrest Jesus, when they saw that, those who were up close and couldn't deny it, they said, I think we're arresting the wrong guy. Why, Why would we? Why are we arresting him? Shouldn't we be following him? 
But even with miracles, unbelief persists. The miracle of creation, the miracle of new life, the miracle of God's grace sometimes, it, it's, it, it's not received by faith. Jesus is humble, but he's not helpless. So let me just close with some therefores, some application. In light of what we see here, because Jesus is aware of our weakness, my friends, then we don't have to deny and we don't have to hide. We can confess. We can, we can seek help. Humility precedes real prayer. It's always how it works. Humility is also the avenue for wisdom. There's no other way. Humility precedes real prayer because prayer is crying. Prayer is asking. Prayer is acknowledging and thanking, amongst other things. And the other thing I would say is that therefore an application is because Jesus empathizes with our weakness, we don't have to fear his rejection. And we can call to him and, and know and trust that we will be met with compassion And even more than that, we will be met with the help of angels. Did you catch that in in our reading? What says is he was in agony in verse 43. Then it says to strengthen him. And being in agony, verse 44, he prayed more earnestly. And then it comes to, you know, it comes to his disciples. And it says that God, you know, strengthened him with, with an angel. Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So because Jesus empathizes with our weakness and we see him crying out, we too can pray for his work through his angels. Angels are not your dead relatives, by the way. Angels are created by God as his ministering spirits. I, I, I love the story of, of two 18th century Scottish ministers uh, who were talking. True story. Um, these two Scottish ministers are having a conversation. One of them is a guy named uh, John Duncan. And uh, his friend was preaching a series through uh, the New Testament, I think, or Old Testament, New Testament on angels. And he said to his buddy, hey, when are you going to preach the sermon about my favorite angel? He says, well, who is that? He's like, I'll let you guess. Okay. Uh, you want to give me a hint? He goes through, he starts guessing, he can't get it. He says, well, he doesn't have a name. He's an anonymous angel. My, my favorite angel, uh, John Dunn says, is, is, uh, is anonymous. So I give up. And this is what Duncan says. He's an anonymous angel. It is the one who came down into Gethsemane and strengthened my Lord to go through agony for me that he might get forward to the cross and finish my redemption there. I have an extraordinary love for that one angel. Pray. The last thing is because Jesus overcomes our weaknesses, we don't have to despair. We can pray. We can pray through him. It's only through Jesus that we are saved, that we are heard, that we are at peace with God. First Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let's call to him. Let's call to him.
Remind one another of the power. Let's, let's, let's remind each other of the posture of prayer. That we might avoid the over extremes of things like self-confidence. Overconfidence or the extreme on the other side, which is despair, where we retreat from the Lord in silence. Both are quiet towards the Lord and not a prayerful posture. But Jesus said, here's the posture. Be alert. Be, be awake, watchful. Temptation will come because there are seasons when we are weak and we are weary. And the only way to do to be alert and awake is through prayer. Prayers move beyond the, the one word of, of why. They also transition into the how. How are you going to work through this? What are you going to teach me? How am I going to persevere? Lord, I need your help. Not my will, but yours be done for Christ's sake. Let me pray. Lord, uh, you know, we know and acknowledge that you are not obliged to pursue anyone and you're not obliged to forgive anyone. So we cry now for mercy, uh, not on account of our words or our intentions or our feelings. We don't cry to you on account of our own merit or good deeds. Because we understand that it's by grace and mercy. It's on account of Christ. Forgive us. Bolster, Lord, us. Uh, please strengthen us in our weakness. Grant us a willingness to admit our great need. Uh, I, I pray that you would uh, cause us to have both the humility and the boldness to ask for help to one another, to you. I pray you would minister in a unique way, even, even at times by the, the very presence of your angels. So many of whom we cannot see meet people who are facing some unique challenges, sorrow, trials, grief, addiction, temptation, loneliness, doubts. Help us, even as I prayed at the beginning, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Not, not, not our present circumstances, but on the assured hope of Jesus, our resurrected King, who's coming back to set up a future garden in the new city. In Jesus' name we pray, asking for his strength and praying in his name and praying as he taught his disciples together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us.